Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having a fantastic Thursday. I bet that a lot of you are either already on vacation or you are about to leave for vacation because tomorrow is the beginning of what for many people will be a four-day weekend. Uh, no radio for me on Monday or Tuesday. I'll be live with Buck tomorrow. If there is any news, I will also do Outkick of the Show. I think tomorrow is going to be a little bit quiet, although I would anticipate uh, that we will see Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan struck down as unconstitutional. want to say, as always, thank you, uh, YouTube. I love all of you. Thank you for clicking like and subscribe as we are nearly at 1.2 million uh, YouTube subscribers for the Outkick channel. Uh, you can also watch this on Rumble, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. So many different ways. The audio version of this podcast goes up as well. So many different ways that you can listen uh, or watch on audio or video. We appreciate all the ways that you guys are consuming this show right now. Uh, okay, let's start with affirmative action. Uh, struck down 6-3 to three by the Supreme Court majority opinion, I think it's the right call, okay? Uh, and there's a couple of data points that I want to hit you with uh, so that you can kind of conceptualize how crazy this is. And also, um, we can talk about what the likelihood is in terms of how this is actually going to impact things uh, going forward. Uh, but let's start here. Uh, six to three decision. I shared a couple of stats with you. I want to make sure I hit it. Uh, by the way, do you believe race should be considered in college admissions? 96% of you voting in my poll said no. Uh, I'm going to get to this as well. Do you believe that parents or grandparents attending a college or university should be considered as a benefit to a child or grandchild's application? 76% of you uh, said no there. I agree with you on this. Okay, I'm reading from Greg Price. Uh the amount of impact that race had on admissions at Harvard is pretty extraordinary. Um, it acted as a net minus 120 impact on the SAT scores of Asian students. And a lot of people are overlooking this uh, because many in the media want to focus on this. The most discriminated against people at college and university admission based on race are Asian. They aren't white. Asian people are actually the most discriminated against when it comes to college and university admissions because, as a group, Asians produce the highest SAT and ACT scores such that Harvard and other elite institutions are discriminating against Asian applicants and admitting less of them than they otherwise would. If you are Hispanic or you are black, you are getting a substantial benefit in terms of your admission chances. Uh, and here is an example of this. A black student in the 40th percentile 
of the Harvard Academic Index, that is really far down on the application index, is more likely to get in than an Asian student in the 100th percentile. Think about that for a minute. 100th percentile Asian student discriminated against in favor of a black student in the 40th percentile. Uh, and this is what I mentioned earlier. Asian people are actually the biggest uh, losers in terms of affirmative action having been legal. Black students in the 50th percentile more likely to get in than white students at the very top. So most people are not going to focus on the Asian angle here because Asian people actually outperform white people. And if you are going to argue that the United States is an awful racist place, it's really difficult to do so when Asian men and women are the highest earning ethnic group in the entire country, right? Um, and so Americans overwhelmingly reject the idea of using race in college admissions. Uh, right now, 74% of them say it's wrong, okay? Including 60% of Democrats, 60% of Democrats say race is wrong in college admissions, 75% of independents, and 88% of Republicans, okay? So, overwhelming majorities of Republicans, Democrats, and independents, and Americans as a whole, reject this, including, and they don't talk about this very much in the media, the state of California, which everyone thinks of as this liberal bastion. In 2022, the state of California overwhelmingly rejected the use of race in college and university admissions. So California, which is not a Donald Trump strong suit, right, overwhelmingly rejected a, uh, an amendment to the state constitution that would have returned race as a metric to be used in admissions in California universities. So I think this was the right decision. The vast majority of Americans believe this was the right decision. Now, I want to talk about it a little bit more. I also think that the use of legacy admissions, that is, people whose parents or grandparents were graduates of a university, I don't think that should be a benefit either. And I say that, look, I've got uh, a undergrad degree from George Washington University. They gave me a scholarship, academic scholarship. I got two degrees from Vanderbilt University, graduate degrees. Uh, I've got a wife, graduated from the University of Michigan. She also has two graduate degrees from Vanderbilt University. So in theory, my three boys, my sons, 15, 12, and 8, would benefit as uh, uh, at, uh, when they are applying, if they do, to the University of Michigan, to George Washington University, or to Vanderbilt University based on having parents who are alums of those institutions. I don't think that should exist. I don't think that legacy admissions should exist uh, in universities. I agree with the 76% of you who voted no in my poll, okay? Uh, I did not benefit from legacy admissions. I believe in the meritocracy. My parents were the first two people in my family to go to college. They went to Middle Tennessee State University, which is in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, here in my home state. Uh, they both attended that school and graduated from it. I didn't apply to MTSU. I suppose there may have been some sort of legacy admissions benefit that I would get there. 
but I don't think that my kids should be judged based on where I went to school, positive or negative. I think that legacy admissions, by and large, shouldn't exist. Now, I understand why a university would if somebody has given tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to a university, I understand why they would admit those kids, right? And and I think there is a level, I say I'm against the legacy admissions, I think there is a level of donor where I would say you should admit them, right? Like, let's say that I ended up worth a billion dollars, okay? Not going to happen, but let's say I did. If I left my billion dollars to, let's say, Vanderbilt University, I think that all of my kids and grandkids should get into Vanderbilt University. I would be super upset if I gave billions of dollars and my kids didn't get in. But just because I went, I don't think my kids should get in if they aren't qualified to get in, right? They shouldn't get a massive boost in legacy admissions. So that, to me, is uh, is consistent. I want the meritocracy to apply, whether it's white, Asian, Hispanic, black, the best uh, candidates should get into the most elite universities. Now, here's a question for you. Does it really matter if you go to an elite institution? I, I, I think it's such a fascinating question. If you are actually, re- let's say you got a perfect score on your SAT. I talked about this on the radio show earlier. And you are left with an option of, hey, I got a 1600 on the SAT. I can go to a state school. Let's say you're from Florida or Georgia or Tennessee or California or New York, wherever it is. If you get a perfect score on your SAT, you can probably go to your state institution for close to free, right? Or you could go to Harvard, Yale, someplace like that. Are the outcomes, because what the schools are really selling as justification for this tuition is the outcome in your life will be far better if you go to Harvard or Yale than it will be if you go to, I don't know, the University of Georgia or to uh, UCLA or to uh, uh, what's a SUNY New Paltz or whatever it is, right? I don't know that I buy that. I think if you are smart enough to get a 1600 on your SAT and you commit yourself at a state school the same way that you would commit yourself at Harvard or Yale, I think the likelihood of your success is not much different. Because in my experience, what I have found, look, we've hired a lot of people at OutKick. Unless I know you as a good friend, I don't even know necessarily where you went to college. We have, I don't know, approaching 100 people that are affiliated with OutKick right now. Unless we've just been out and they've been like, hey, I went to this college. I don't think anybody's college location has improved their chances of ending up getting hired at OutKick. Because what we're looking for is work performance. So I think, now that's not to say, look, if your parents are super wealthy, and you have a choice and you're like, hey, I can go to Stanford or I can go to, I don't know, the University of Tennessee. I would say go to Stanford, right? Um, as a kid uh, growing up in Tennessee, 
uh, I took a scholarship to GW. I think that was a good decision because of the peer group I was surrounded by. But I don't know that the trajectory of where I've ended up would be different if I had gone to Harvard versus GW versus a solid state school like in the honors program, as many of you would be, right? Uh, so I think that is a little bit of a fallacy. I will say that changes a bit when you go to grad school. Because I think going to Vanderbilt University Law School was the best academic decision I made post-high school. I think my high school, Martin Luther King Magnet in Nashville, drastically changed my outcome. Uh, that is a magnet school, public school, compared to the zone school that I would have gone to. I just think I had to push myself so much harder 7th to 12th grade. I think it elevated my potential educational outcome in a substantial way. I'm not sure that GW did that. I think that Vanderbilt did. And Vanderbilt Law School is different because you're getting hired into law uh, practices, and where you go to law school does dictate very much the first job that you can often get when you graduate from that law school. Now, it doesn't matter by the time you're in your 30s, I don't think very much, but in your 20s, I think it does matter. Which brings me to this. I'm fascinated by the fact that Katanji Brown Jackson was in dissent on this affirmative action case. Why? Because the way that she was hired for the Supreme Court actually would not be permissible under the logic of the college and university admission process, by which I mean this. And I've criticized Joe Biden on this since he did it in the spring of 2020. Joe Biden said, I'm only going to pick a black woman to put on the Supreme Court. When he did that, he eliminated 94% of all people in the United States, probably higher than that, because there's probably less than 6% of the practicing attorneys in the United States that are black women. That would be my guess. I could be wrong on that. But let's just presume that roughly black women re represent in the legal profession, roughly what they do in the population at large. He actually undercut Katanji Brown Jackson's legitimacy by saying, I'm excluding my search to only black women. Because if he had did, done what Donald Trump did, which is say, hey, here's a list of the 20 most qualified Supreme Court judicial nominees, in my opinion, and he put out that list of 20, and then... Katanji Brown Jackson had been on that list and he had selected her, no one would have said the only reason he picked her is because he wanted a black woman. But when he said, I'm only going to pick a black woman, and then he picked a black woman, he actually undercut her legitimacy. And this is important. This is what affirmative action often does. It makes someone look like they don't deserve the opportunity they're getting because they're being treated more fairly based on their race or their gender, which I think actually undercuts the meritocracy, okay? Because actually what the data reflects on affirmative action is oftentimes what it leads to is bad fit because someone, these are not bad schools, someone who should have been admitted at the University of Texas because they were the average University of Texas student, instead goes to Harvard. 
and the mismatch between where they would have gone, the University of Texas, let's say, and where they went to a supreme academic institution actually leads to less successful outcomes than if you were slotted based on grades. Now, I think what's going to happen here is there's going to be a conscious decision made uh, to eliminate a lot of testing, right? And remember why standardized testing began in the first place. A lot of people don't know this. Back in the day, Harvard, Yale, that coterie of Ivy League schools, they were discriminating against Jewish people because they were primarily uh, admitting white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, so-called WASPs, at wildly higher rates than they deserved, and they were looking away from Jewish students. And so the SAT and the ACT were designed to provide a statistically even measuring stick so that you couldn't get in just based on being an elite member of society. So now what we're saying is, because the SAT and the ACT overwhelmingly favor Asian people, because Asian people score higher, the meritocracy isn't working because it's not diverse enough. Uh, and that brings me to this. The only diversity that should matter, in my opinion, especially in education, but really everywhere, is diversity of thought. Because if you surround yourself with people who look different but think the same, all you've done is create cosmetic diversity. People look different but all think the same. What matters in terms of educational uh, uh, training, and certainly I believe outcomes in business and industry, is a variety of perspectives so that that diversity of thought allows you to see the fulsomeness of opinion and make the best decision based on that. But in particular, what is necessary on college campuses is diversity of thought, not diversity of color. And where I will say I would be in favor of looking at something other than straight meritocracy is I do think socioeconomic diversity should matter. That is, I think all of these elite schools need kids who are poorer because I believe it's harder for a poor kid to advance than it is for a rich kid to advance. And oftentimes what was happening was race was being used as a proxy for socioeconomic status, but that's a raw tool that oftentimes doesn't work because there are lots of rich black kids who are the daughters uh, and sons of doctors and lawyers who have way more money in their household than a poor white kid might growing up in Appalachia, right? Sasha and Malia Obama, the daughters of Barack and Michelle Obama, are far more advantaged and far more wealthy than the vast majority of white kids in America. So why should we use race as a proxy for socioeconomic status when there are tons of rich black people, there are tons of rich Hispanic people, and oftentimes their kids who are wealthy and already have all the advantages of that uh, socioeconomic status are getting the benefit of also being treated as if they have overcome some huge obstacle. Uh, when the reality is that 
socioeconomic stature is actually less diverse on college campuses. What you end up with is a lot of very rich people. It's actually far more racially diverse than it is socioeconomically diverse. And I think certainly if you look at faculty, there is far more cosmetic diversity than there is diversity of thought. We'll be right back. Got to take a little break here. We are rolling without kicking. You don't want to miss a moment. Stay tuned. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Uh, a couple of other stories that are out there. I watched this morning RFK Jr. discussing vaccine. And I want to be honest with you guys. Um, I had not seen, uh, and I did not spend very much time as a parent on thinking about vaccines. And I bring that up because... I do think it's important. I have, after watching RFK Jr., all my kids got all the COVID, I mean, sorry, all the vaccines. They didn't get the COVID shot. But all my kids got their standard, you know, childhood vaccines. But when I watched RFK Jr., I wonder whether I should have done more research on vaccinating my kids and whether all of the vaccines are actually necessary from a risk-reward perspective. Because in the wake of COVID, when our government CDC, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, lied to us about the COVID shots efficacy, about the masking efficacy, about social distancing, about what locking down was going to do, about shutting down schools, they were wrong on all that. I'm now very skeptical that they're right on anything. And when I watch RFK Jr., what I also think is the thing you most need to be saying is what you are often told is the thing that you cannot say. Because what I have seen since COVID happened, and to a certain extent during the Trump administration itself, is conventional wisdom is often totally wrong. And an awful lot of people that are labeled wacko conspiracy theorists end up being almost 100% right. When I've seen that happen as often as I have, I start to wonder about many of the things that we are told that we are not allowed to question. Also, a part of me thinks that we are going to see RFK Jr. if Donald Trump is the nominee as his vice presidential choice. A lot of you out there may be saying, whoa, this is crazy. Right now, we just had Tim Scott on the radio program. I would make right now Tim Scott the favorite to be Donald Trump, if he's the nominee for Republicans, to be Donald Trump's vice presidential pick. But in the second spot right now, I would put RFK Jr. And I think that would be a really fascinating ticket if Trump picked either of those guys, but in particular RFK Jr. And I'll just put it out there as an idea floating in the back of your mind of what a revolutionary choice that would mean 
uh, and make, and also what it would do to the overall establishment at large uh, as it pertains to RFK Jr. I like him. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says. I think we got to get away from this concept of, oh, you have to agree with everything any presidential candidate says. No, you should. You are all unique thought, uh, filled with unique thoughts yourself and opinions. You should never, in my opinion, 100% agree with any political candidate. So there are lots of things RFK Jr. believes that I wouldn't agree with. But I think he's a compelling advocate, and I think he actually is very intelligent. And he wants to bring the United States back together again. He talks about how his father, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., had that appeal. Um, and I would like to see that happen. I mean, my book that's coming out on August 8th is all about how do we get to 60% of people liking the president again, because I think that's how normalcy returns. And I'm a kid who grew up, 60% of people liked Reagan, 60% of people liked Bill Clinton. One reason the 80s and the 90s were so stable in general, I believe, is because most people in the 80s and 90s thought Reagan and Clinton, even though they were from different parties, were doing a pretty good job as president of the United States. Just file that away. I wonder about RFK Jr. potentially as the running mate of Donald Trump. Um, I'm going to share this clip. I shared it already on my, on my Twitter feed. I'm going to ask them to embed it here. Uh, Dana Carvey and David Spade, there's about a one-minute clip where they make fun of Dr. Fauci and the COVID shots and the mandates and the fact that there was no requirement if you were coming across the southern United States border that you needed to get the COVID shot. The reason why I bring this up, and this is a big part of my book as well, uh, and I would encourage all of you, American Playbook, it's going to be out August 8th. I am going, in fact, let me look right now. Uh, and see if I've got the email uh, from uh, the publisher yet laying out all of the places that we are going to be. I think I'm going to 15 or 20 different places um, in order to uh, in order to uh, in order to kind of chase all this down. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be in California. I, so I'll, I'll give you a rough outline of where I'm going to be. I'm going to be basically in all of the cities where we are number one with our radio show in August. And also I'm going to be in all the cities that are top five markets for OutKick as well. So we're essentially trying to pair the OutKick audience with the Clay and Buck audience, and that's going to have me on the road for a substantial period of time when the book comes out, doing events, doing signings. I hope to meet a lot of you out there. But Dana Carvey and David Spade, I wish they'd been making these jokes a couple of years ago, but if you watch the clip that I shared, and we'll share it here now, and I'll pause, what you will see based on that humor is Dr. Fauci is now becoming the butt of jokes, and the entire COVID shot is becoming the butt of jokes, and I think that's the direction that history is going to go. I think Dr. Fauci is going to become one of the great villains of American history. Uh, because I think he got almost everything wrong on COVID for disastrous consequences. And I think in the back of his mind, Fauci knows that's true. And I think that's why he's so aggressively trying to preserve his legacy while he's still alive. I think in the back of his mind, he has to know that he got everything with COVID wrong and that he lied to Congress and that the reason COVID even existed was because some of our taxpayer-funded dollars went to Wuhan 
to allow gain-of-function research, which helped to create uh, this particular virus, which I believe escaped from a Chinese lab. I'll also mention this. I think it's worth mentioning. Remember how everybody said it was racist to refer to COVID coming from China? And if you called it the China virus, it was like, oh, you're an awful, horrible racist. And you know what they said? They said, also, it's racist to say that it escaped from a Chinese lab. How dare you? It's super racist. But they said, all the people who said you're racist for saying it escaped from a Chinese lab, they actually said, no, it spread through a Chinese wet market, which is so gross and unsanitary, where they bring all these different animals. They said that it spread there as a result of the lack of hygiene and cleanliness. Isn't that actually more racist? Isn't it actually more racist to argue that COVID emerged from a Chinese wet market, which was so disgusting and gross because Chinese people will eat basically anything? Isn't that actually more racist than saying, yeah, it was in this highly regulated lab and there were some security failures and the uh, COVID virus emerged due to those security failures inside of this lab, and that's how it got out? Like, a lab leak actually seems far less racist than this Chinese wet market is so backwards and filled with such awful hygiene and disgusting habits that that's where COVID came from? Just worth thinking about. Even the argument of being racist, it seems to me, fails on its face. Uh, Finally. NFL gambling pen, uh, penalties. Nicholas Petit Frere, which I believe is French for little brother, uh, he is the uh, one of the tackles for the Tennessee Titans. The NFL has put out new suspensions for gambling on games, and Petit Frere, based on his uh, statement, is saying that he didn't actually bet on the NFL, but he bet on other sports from the Titan facility, uh, and they caught him. And he now has been suspended for six games. And this, to me, raises a bunch of interesting questions uh, for all of you out there. I knew, and you probably did as well, and I'm far from a tech savant, but you know that some states allow sports gambling and some states do not. And therefore, there is a geolocation targeting that, for instance, if I am in Tennessee and I cross into Alabama or Georgia... I can't bet on sports in those two states from my phone, right? So I'm in Tennessee. If I drive south to either Alabama or Georgia, it's not legal for me to bet on sports. So it makes sense that there would be a geofence and that when you cross from one state to another, sports gambling is not allowed because Alabama and Georgia, for instance, have not voted to allow. Understood. I didn't know that the sports gambling companies had the ability to geo-target to such an extent that they knew where exactly you place the bet from in your state. I don't know if it's everywhere. Like, I have a Wi-Fi network in my house. Is the FanDuel and DraftKings, I got a bunch of these different apps on my phone, can they tell where exactly I am placing a bet from anywhere in the vicinity of the city of Nashville? So if I'm out to a restaurant and I see that a game's about to start or it's halftime and I want to place a bet, can they tell to the, like, literal location where I'm placing a bet? Or was this specific alone 
to NFL franchises and maybe college uh, schools, whatever. Also, do the players know the degree to which they are being tracked and who provides the information to the leagues? It's all very fascinating to me, right? So let's say you are Nicholas Petit Frere. You, and I don't know what he gambled on, but let's say you're in the Titans facility and it's off season and you are getting rehab on, uh, I don't know, your knee. And so you go in to get rehab treatment on your knee. And while you're sitting there and they're working on your knee, you have your phone in your hand as most people would. And you scroll through and you're like, oh man, uh, the Braves are playing against uh, the Miami Marlins. Man, I love the Braves. They've got Spencer Strider on the mound. They're on a roll. They're going to beat the Miami Marlins. Let me place my $50 bet on the Miami Marlins. And he does that, and that originates from the Tennessee Titan facility. Does the gambling company, this has to be the way it works. So the gambling company then flags that bet because of where it originated from, tracks down his IP address, and turns him in to the NFL? Because remember, what they're saying is he's getting suspended because of where he placed the bet. It would be different if he bet on an NFL game, right? That's a no-no. Everybody kind of understands that. But it was just of where he placed the bet that is getting him suspended six games, not that he placed the bet. So what if he had been in the parking lot? What if he had been at a gas station by the Titans facility? Why does where he places the bet dictate the suspension? And bigger question, who notifies that this is going on? And do players consent to this? I wouldn't want my team finding out about every bet that I place. Now, look, some of you could say, well, they just shouldn't bet at all. Okay, I understand that. Certainly hypocritical for the NFL to be taking billions of dollars in these sports gambling companies, some of the NFL owners having investment stakes in these gambling companies. They send out emails all the time. I'm a Titan season ticket holder. They send out emails encouraging me to gamble. Okay? All of this adds up, and it starts to raise, I think, some really difficult and interesting questions about privacy, about who is monitoring all of the NFL players, about how they're being turned in, and about the cost associated with this. Six-game suspension is a lot of money relative to what's being bet. I just think that sports gambling is a big mess for these leagues, and the way that they're implementing these rules is also, frankly, a little bit scary, and I think all sorts of legal complexities are associated with it. I haven't heard very many people asking it. But just think about that. Uh, if you were a player, and again, I'm just making up a hypothetical scenario. You're in the facility. You decide to bet on a random baseball game. You're getting your knee worked on. Does it seem like you should get suspended for six games because you placed a wager that would be legal anywhere else in the entirety of your state? but you happen to be on the Wi-Fi network at the team facility, and so you got suspended for six games and gave up nearly half of your salary after you got narked on by a sports gambling company? Probably. 
that doesn't feel right to me. And I bet it doesn't feel right to a lot of you as well. And I bet it doesn't feel right to a lot of NFL players and athletes in general. Just something to think about. I love all of you. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP. Maybe I'll be live tomorrow if there's news. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to be starting my July 4th holiday. I will be live on Clay and Buck regardless. I love you guys. Appreciate you. See you tomorrow.